In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. gentlemen welcome to the psychedelic round table on this beautiful sunday afternoon i hope everybody's having a beautiful day whether it's the end of your week or it's the beginning of your week i once heard a story that said uh the difference between the christians and the jews are that for one group the the sabbath is on saturday and one group, the Sabbath is on Sunday, and that's why the Jews are always one up on the Christians because they like to do the work <laughs> and then take the weekend. And some people like to take the weekend and then do the work. So, regardless, it's uh, welcome, Ben. Thanks for being here, man. Hey, thank you, brother. Nice to be here on a well, just a two person round table at this point. I'm sure the stragglers will, will come on in, huh? Yeah, I think so, man. I think so. <laughs> you know, I, I had this idea yesterday i had a i had a pretty big trip this weekend and uh i took about a quarter of these i think they were liberty caps of some sort as i was talking to you earlier and i i was i've been thinking a lot about how to integrate the psychedelic experience and in this experience you know it seems to me it's it's not debatable that there's a heightened sense of awareness when you're on some sort of psychedelic trip and I think you're taking in more information there. And I've, I've been playing with that idea. But I, on this particular trip, I came to this conclusion, and I'm curious to what you think. And anybody who's listening in the audience, please put in the comments what you think about this. I think that the next evolution of speech, the next evolution of communication, is being able to see people's intention. Like being able to understand what it is they want when they walk up to you, being able to, to physically notice it. I don't know that you see it with your eyes. Maybe you take in information through your senses, but you can understand what people's intentions are when they approach you. What do you think about that? Well, <clears throat> if you had caught me years ago, I would have kind of chuckled and laughed at that, I think. 
but after you know some especially recent experiences i would say it's much more than even intent you 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 develop a sense and it's you know it, it's a cumulative sense is kind of the best i could describe it and it's probably has something to do with the not just greater sensory information that you're perceiving but also the rate of processing that's happening because the interconnection of those different regions of the brain all of a sudden kicks off and as you know just all you're you're a million miles a minute and you're just like wow and everything actually makes sense it's not like you're just losing control or losing your mind it's actually like things are just slotting into place that fast uh and so I think, you know, it's, I think there's a, that probably is where that stems from and kind of where it emanates from. Yeah. It's like, after I, I think I had that idea because th throughout the week I had had all these different situations happen to me where, you know, people were coming up to me and I'm like, I, I wonder what, and I, I, it took me time to process, but you know, people would come up to me and they would be standing next to me and, and I, I would just get this weird vibe from them. And then, you know, it just, it just dawned on me that I, I think that this person is wanting to be close to me for these specific reasons. And it's interesting to think about, but you know, when I look back and I listen to some different lectures of people that were talking about psychedelics or, you know, I, I think specifically about, uh, I think it was Terrence McKenna who was talking about Philo Judeus who said that, the next, the logos will be a more of the, the reemergence of the logos will be a language to be beheld that you will, you know, you'll, you'll behold the language. And for so long, I believed that that was some way of seeing the words or seeing a language. But now that I really begin to think about it and process it, I think intent itself is t kind of like a language. And if, if, if it is like you say, if it's a faster processing speed, then you would be able to thoroughly un understand what someone's intention is if you can take in more information from the environment. You know, if you can take in more information from that person, then you should get a better view of what their intent on their situation is. It makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I think there's other factors to that, too. I think it's also, you know, you're creating a greater basically information density well around you mm. uh almost you know similar to how you know we have a gravity well around earth that allows us to maintain the moon right and i and or grab passing objects like asteroids and turn them into meteors and i think there's an aspect of that you know as above so below right yeah. but there's an aspect of that when all of this is engaged as well because you know you'll see certain people gravitate towards you and it's the people that need to gravitate towards you, that want to gravitate towards you, that are going to fulfill some sort of, you know, whatever your your intent is that day and what you're up to. You know, it, it kind of, you know, it's almost like this this gravity well that forms around one as they walk through these, you know, these integrated journeys in my experience. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, you know, we've been playing with this model for quite some time that you can understand yourself by understanding your environment, you know, the as above, so below model that we mentioned so much on this podcast. And it just, you know, maybe it is the, uh, the idea that you find what you're looking for, regardless of, of that unconscious bias or, or whatever, but it just mm -hmm. seems like there's so many examples and maybe it's because we've been talking about it so much. 
Yeah, you know, I I'm pretty good with biases. I yeah. you know, I've been pretty skeptical of this whole thing, really. Yeah. You know, um I I like we've talked about a bit. I come from more of a science technical background and very much, you know, logic step oriented systems. I think in models and all of this stuff. And so, you know, to throw these things in there, it's like, you know, you're breaking the system, you're breaking the model. Well, you know, then, but this is, this is a real experience. And then all of a sudden you have shared experiences and then you have similar experiences with other people like yourself and me that would just meet. And then you go, okay, well, once you start to see all the smoke, there has to be some fire somewhere. I don't know where it is quite yet, but I, you know, I'm getting close to it. Right. Yeah. I had a, um, I want to get your take on this. I had a, I have a really good friend that him and I, he's like the only other person in my community that, that I know that does like large doses and he would do, you know, tens, 14s and I'm going to get him on the podcast, but I want everyone to hear this guy's story because it's fascinating. I'll try to, I'll try to give it a primer and then I'll give you some background to it and see what everybody thinks. So we had, we had split like in, like we were, it was a Friday night and we were each going to do, I did eight grams of the, of the, uh, albino penis envies and he did 10. And I remember I texted him right before because we had both gotten home and I'm like, all right, brother, I'll see you on the other side, you know? And I, I did mine and, and uh, I woke up the next day and, you know, I felt pretty good. I had a great trip. They were really strong. And later that night, I got a phone call from a mutual friend that said, hey, your boy had a heart attack last night. He's in the hospital. And I was like, I was blown away because, the, you know, first off, I love the guy. He's a great person. And to mm-hmm. think that he had a heart attack, it blew my mind. And then I started thinking, like, dude, I just texted that guy before I did a mushroom trip. I'll see you on the other side. Like, what the fuck? That's so crazy. You know, like, what are the chances of that? And so it turns out he he woke up or, you know, I don't think he really slept that night. It's a pretty big dose. And maybe, maybe he fell back asleep. And in the morning he woke up and he ended up, he got out of bed with his wife and just fell over and was having a heart attack. His wife gave him CPR. Wow. Uh, they saved his life. He went into the hospital and uh, they induced him in a coma for like, for what, like six days. They kept him in a coma mm-hmm. so that they wanted to figure out everything. They sedated him super heavy. And so all this was a, this was a very big ordeal and life changing for him. And a lot of things happened along the way. And I finally got to see him face to face for the first time yesterday. And I was, you know, it, it was, it was real surreal. And I was asking him about, you know, what exactly can you tell me, share with my story, share with me what had happened. And he tells me that he goes, you know, George, this is going to sound crazy, but I think it was the mushrooms that saved my life. And I'm like, how do you figure, man? You don't think it was the mushrooms that killed you? And he goes, no, because I, I, no one, they don't know what stopped my heart. It was cardiac arrest. My heart stopped. I died. I was dead off and on for four. This guy was dead for 44 minutes off and on. They shocked him like 10 different times. <clears throat> and um, when, they, when they finally got him to the hospital, the machine was keeping him alive and they were preparing his family. They were like, look, you know, to be honest with you, the family, people really don't come out of this. He's been off and on in and, in and out of life. The machine's breathing for him. It's not looking good. And if he does come back, he's probably going to have severe brain damage because, you know, the oxygen hasn't been getting to his brain. And uh, long story longer, he... He came too, you know, and when I was talking to him, he said that he goes, you know, George, 
it's it's true. He goes, I cannot, I, I can't even understand why I'm here and I'm having a tough time understanding why me. But while I was, I don't know if I was dead or I was alive, but I saw these jokers, like the same kind of jokers you would see on the pack of a playing cards. And they were sitting in front of me and they were throwing stuff at me and laughing at me and like rearranging stuff in my head. He's like, it was the scariest thing I've ever seen. Hey, okay. And he talked, yeah, like, you know, and it's, it's, it's everything that you've heard before about a DMT trip in some aspect. You know what I mean? Or well, something you've read in like a shamanic trip. Right. Well, but supposedly as you're dying, right, we release massive amounts of DMT. Yeah. So they, that, would, that would line up pretty well. Yeah, that's what I was thinking as well. And then I started, you know, when he told me, I think that maybe the mushrooms had something to do with keeping me from having brain damage. There's a lot of literature that talks about how the neurogenesis happens and how you're, you know, in the height of a mushroom trip, you're having all this interconnectivity and it would make sense. I'm not saying this is true, but it would make sense if that your brain lacking oxygen or your brain getting cut off under the influence of mushrooms, it may be helpful to have those connections moving back and forth, right? Well, yeah, well, I think, you know, I think this just becomes a numbers game at that point. Because as you're going into those states, you know, there's you're obviously going to be losing certain connections and, right. and, and different neurons are going to die and whatnot. But if you have an abundance of these novel connections that happen during this trip that, you know, it takes a, some of those remain for very long periods of time. Others wear off pretty relatively fast, but it still takes time for them to wear off. Right. So you have all of these novel brain connections and now, you know, the atrophy that's happening in that time period is going to be less on an overall effect because it's taking away at, at, at a greater, a greater number. It's, you know, it's starting with a greater number of, of connections. And so you're going to end up with a greater number of connections at the end of the experience. So I, you know, from just a purely physical way, you know, physical phenomena, I could see how that would work mechanistically. Yeah. And I was, I was thinking on, uh, you know, from what I've read, and obviously I'm not a scientist or I'm not a doctor anyways, but from what I've read, you know, when you take large amounts of psilocybin or psychedelics, it affects the default mode network, right? And if you think of the default mode network is like this box that turns everything on. If you shut off the energy to that box, you're going to shut off everything. But if the default mode network is already shut off and the blood stops flowing into that box, I think the other connections are still going to be somewhat running. You know, that can, that's a very crude estimate. And I'm like I said, I'm not any sort of doctor or anything like that. But I'm wondering, I, I, it just gets me wondering, like, could it be like, if this was true, could this be some sort of novel idea of helping stroke victims? Like, you know how they, they, if you give a victim something right before they have a heart attack, it lessens the effects of it. Might psilocybin be that thing that if you could get someone in the midst of a heart attack, give them a shot of psilocybin, might that save their brain memories might that save the the neuroplasticity might that save their ability to think later down the line it, it could do even more than that. um you know because we, we've talked about ionophores a little bit but it increases the bioelectricity in the system as well mm. and you have nervous you know you have neuro neuronal tissue in your heart as well as your gut and there's other places in your body that all of this stuff is getting affected you're not just getting neurogenesis in the brain you're getting neurogenesis in the sense that neurons novel connections between neuronal centers in the body even can have some effect here 
So I think when when you when you weigh that into what we could possibly describe as a, a treatment, I think you know it's very much an open-ended question of you know what if, but I think there's great potential there. Uh, you know, and let's not—I mean, let's take it back just a couple right. steps and say anything that anything that promotes neurogenesis, the actual physical growing of new neurons, right, and new connections and new new pathways in the brain and in the rest of the body and the neuronal centers in the body. I mean, how fascinating is that? That's you know, we've we've had pharmacology kicking around the bucket trying to figure out how to pass the brain blood brain barrier for forever with all this stuff and here we have this wonderful thing that grows on every continent on the planet that just does it like it was you know part of it part of a system right yeah yeah it's 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 interesting to think about and you know i it also blows my mind to hear people's stories who have been to the edge and you know i it's it's interesting because he had told me that you know that guy died and he, he felt as if he has a second chance. Like most people who come close to death or, you know, be it yourself that has an accident or you lose a child or a loved one or any sort of tragedy like that, you do end up coming out of it eventually, hopefully, with a new sense of self, like a renewed love or, or lust for life. Like, oh, my God, I can't believe I got the second chance and everything's a little shinier. The colors are a little brighter because you, you got so close to realizing the mortality that that is life. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you would be hard pressed to find somebody who doesn't find a new lease on life. Yeah, typically. Um, yeah, but you know, I, I also think that that's a bit of a nurture thing as well. You know, because our entire lives, people talk about death, people talk about afterlives, people talk about, you know, eternities, people talk about all this stuff, but nobody really has any solid answers for people. And, you know, unless you're truly heretical, you're going to be questioning all of this stuff at, at your, at your last moments. Right. Yeah. And, you know, so I think, I think part of our, part of our relationship with death weighs heavily into that, you know, Oh, I kind of like cheated death, a little bit i kind of got away from that i get my my new lease on life so i think that plays a lot into it as well yeah i was uh you know trying to put a positive spin on it like there's there's so much pain that comes from that however i oh, think yeah. if you i think if you can if you can understand and it's tough to do in the beginning but i think if you can understand that coming close to death or having a near-death experience or even the biggest tragedies in your life, they end up being the greatest gift that you can have because it's, it's something that forces you to see not only your limitations, but also forces you to maybe develop the gifts that you want in life. You know, and, and very rarely are you put in those. Anytime you're like, pressure makes diamonds. And if you find yourself in a situation where it's live or die and you escape death, then it only makes sense that the life you live should be a little shinier, should have a little more, a little more shine to it. Right. And I think, you know, there's something to be extracted into yeah. just the daily lesson too. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, in a, in a bit of a sense of it, 
we die nightly. We go to sleep. We mm. don't have any idea what happens when all that shuts off. We know stuff happens. Sometimes yeah. we come back with some weird imagery. Sometimes we come back with nothing. Sometimes we wake up sweating. You know, sometimes we wake up in other situations. And, you know, so every day is kind of a similar instance to that. But because we've, you know, we've normalized the fact that we do wake up every morning when the sun comes up or, you know, whenever we wake up. Uh, you know, we kind of detach ourselves from that process a little bit. So I think there's something, you know, to extract when you can extract that into your life. I mean, obviously, you know, circumstances are circumstances, right? But I, I, when you have the ability to, you know, be, and I, I think that's where kind of like gratitude comes from. Mm. When a lot of people start talking about gratitude from like a self-help perspective or, you know, a religious perspective or a spiritual perspective. I think that's where a lot of it is kind of born from is, you know, realizing the small things to have gratitude for. Right. You know, it's it's not just the it's not just that one instance. Those instances can be very powerful, like you said. Um, and those are things that you can't buy. Right. You can't go out and be like, I want a near death experience. I mean. Maybe you could someplace, but I wouldn't trust anybody. It's kind yeah. of sketchy, you know. <laughs> um, but so I think, you know, there's this is an interesting, you know, kind of whenever you start talking about life and death, you're always going to get a lot of a lot of people upset because, you know, grief is a real thing. Yeah. Um, and anybody who's gone through grief knows what grief is. And if you haven't, you haven't. Um, and it's one of those things where it you can't help but change. I mean, there is no choice but to change who you are. Uh, and but you know, to your point, that is fuel for the ultimate fuel for the fire, really. So it it drove me down this rabbit hole. Let me know if you think this is what you think about this. It seems to me that. A lot of people, and all you need to do is go to the bookstore and look at the the great writers or the self-help section or look at some of the people that you admire in your life. And it seems to me that some of the most inspiring people on the planet have had horrible, and I mean horrible things happen to them, like their kids dying or their, their loved one dying. And there seems to be this kiss of power that comes from sacrifice and and death and that made me think like it made me think back to like the aztecs and and some of these cults where people sacrifice their kids or they sacrifice their loved ones you know if if you believe or if it's believed that those people who touch death by watching a loved one die come back stronger with a gift might it make sense then that's why some of these cults or that's why some of these ancient traditions killed innocent people is because they wanted people to suffer so they could come back stronger? I mean, I could see it. Why not, right? <laughs> you know, humans humans go to all sorts of extremes to try to facilitate behaviors. Right. And, and I think if you built a whole system around that, a whole culture around that, then surely you could really influence a good number of people via that mechanism. You know, so now 
is that a good thing? <laughs> it's a horrible um, thing. Yeah, I, I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. But <laughs> all of a sudden, fast forward to today, and we're actually doing it again. I don't know if you heard this. Uh, a couple days back, some 23-year-old woman uh, in Belgium decided to get euthanized. Hmm. And apparently it's legal in Belgium. And so she, 23 years old, she was in, she had PTSD from some bombing incident. Um, and so was just having a miserable time of things, but then decided that she just wanted to kill herself at 23 and the doctors killed her. So we're nearly back to that same stage of things right now. That's interesting. I mean, did she have some psychiatric evaluations or, I mean. She was, she was diagnosed with PTSD mm. and depression. So, and then it, it was just a, like a voluntary choice. And I guess that's part of what you can do in Belgium. And that's so, legal in Belgium? Apparently. So it's like assisted suicide. Yeah. I guess it's saying, it's, it's, it's interesting to use those words, assisted suicide and euthanized, right? Because when I think of euthanized, I think of putting someone down. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I, um, I don't know, man. I, I, on one level, I, I feel like, you know, your brain at 23, your brain's not even fully formed. I don't know if you should be able to to do that. But on another level, I mean, it's your life. And, you know, should you be able to take it if you want to? I, I, I kind of think you should. I think you so. Know? I mean, yeah. you're not beholden to anybody, really. I mean, it is your your life, your experience. Uh, you know, it's a tragic thing, though. Because yeah. I, because I think there actually is. You know, as we were just talking about, I think there's methods to unravel those things. Yeah. And what does it say about people? I mean, what does it say about an establishment? People? Yeah. Yeah. Like th this person has no hope. They have nothing. They're just like, I'm out of here. Well, right. And then, and then for that to be supported. Because yeah. ultimately that's what, that's what that action is when you're talking assisted suicide. I mean, that's how many people had to sign on for that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on the flip side, like, I think I'm for assisted suicide later in life. You know, I'm, I don't know about earlier in life, but if I'm for it later in life, why should it be any different earlier in life? Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm for people having a free choice. Right. However, I think, there should be something to be said about um, kind of expelling options, available options, right? Right. Um, now, maybe the options weren't available there. You know, who knows? You know, there's all sorts of different problems when you start talking about that. Yeah, it's nice and it sounds nice, but there's socioeconomic problems that, you know, make it unfeasible sometimes, right? Right. Let alone political problems and all ideologies and all religious things and all sorts of different, you know, shenanigans of humanity. Yeah. Um, yeah, so. I wonder if there's like, you know, it would be interesting. It's kind of science fiction-y, but, you know, what if we could make a drug that would simulate death and you could take this drug and die, you know, and then you could. That's kind of what the psychedelic experience <laughs> is. I agree. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it from the just the release, massive release of DMT in the brain. Right. Yeah, it's. It's like a hard reset. Yeah, that's the experience that, that when death happens, that's what one would kind of experience. So then if you came back from that, you know, that's coming back from death. And I think that's kind of where the ego death, kind of that parlance comes from. 
Yeah. You know, I was thinking about different drugs and different effects, and I know that sometimes on psychedelics I'll have like a time dilation effect. Like I, I feel like I can, I feel like I've lived, you know, almost a different lifetime in, you know, or I've, I've <laughs> oh, yeah. at least lived out. It seems like I've lived a different lifetime. Like I've lived multiple lifetimes or I've at least seen myself living in different situations, which seemed like a different, it, it, it's a distortion of time. And so I was wondering if like, if you could figure out how to isolate that particular experience and dilate time, like, wouldn't it be amazing if you could take a drug that slowed time down in your mind and you could, you could study stuff during that time, or, you know, I'm sure it could be used for nefarious reasons where if you took a drug and, you know, 10 minutes seemed like 10 days or 10 days seemed like a hundred years, then you could put people in prison in that way or, in right. some ways, I think you can. I think if you take that, like there's a scopolamine, which mm -hmm. makes you pretty much mute, you know? Like imagine being in that state where you're alive in your mind, but you can't even move or you're like in a coma. That's kind of creepy. Yeah, there, there's a lot of nefarious purposes and things like that. <laughs> I think there was actually, what was that movie? Yeah, oh, it was, uh, it was a remake, Judge Dredd. Did you ever see okay. that? Never have, no. Well, they remade it for, I don't know, whatever, the umpteenth time. It was originally a comic book, but the drug that they actually was, they were fighting against in that movie was a, exactly what you described, a drug that slowed down time. And so, like, their clever way to kill people in the movie was to pump a whole bunch of this drug into them and then push them off a building. Oh, wow. So for them, you know, you know, in the movie, it would be, you know, forever. But at the end of the day, I mean you really don't change the effects of physics. So, right. It, it was, you know, it was Hollywood, of course, but yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think back to the time dilation thing, I think right. there's a lot to be said about that. Uh, you know, what really kind of got me interested into, you know, searching down the physics realm and information theory that I eventually came up with and all that was my first mushroom experience. Um, and I, you know, I had never done anything up to, I was like 24 years old. And my buddy was like, Hey, you want to take some mushrooms? I'm like, you know what? Yeah. Today <laughs> I do. And so we ate about an eighth of mushrooms a piece and then went to the club that we always went to. And I was, I was doing some country line dancing at the time, you know, it was pretty nice. Good but uh, all of a sudden this kicks in and I had the wildest experience because all of a sudden, I, I knew what people were going to say before they said it. I knew what people were going to do as they walked around the corner. I knew what clothes they were wearing. I knew what they were going to say to me. I'm talking minutes before it actually happened. And I'm just like, and I'm like sitting there, I'm like freaking out because I'd never done anything in my life besides just drink quite a bit up until that point. But, you know, nothing like this. And I'm just sitting there like, I can see the future. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> so... You know, I, I wrote down some lottery numbers on my phone just in case it <laughs> work out. But, you know, <laughs> I guess I couldn't see that far in the future. Uh, but, yeah, that whole night I knew everything that was going to happen before it happened. And so, I was, yeah, that kind of kicked me down the rabbit hole of all rabbit holes. And I've been on that rabbit hole journey for the past you know, 15 some years. What so. an amazing experience to have a state of mind that you've never like a novel state of mind. And I think that that's something that psychedelics do is they, they present you 
with knowledge or ideas that you've never had before. And that gets so intoxicating to be in that position where you come upon information that's all around you, but you've never grasped before. Oh, yeah. Then, you know, the novel experience, I think that's yeah. kind of the underlying motivation for why we always we have this penchant for explore, exploration. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, when you start thinking about it, you, you know, you're exploring the inner self the same way you explore the land, you know, and you there's so much same terminology like, mm -hmm. hey, I'm going to go on a trip. You know, whether it's a vacation or you're taking some some drugs, you're on a trip. And when you get high, you see stuff from different perspectives. So you're looking down at it the same way you can maybe look back on your life. You can look back on the trail that you're on if you're on a hike, you know, and it's interesting to think how how those two things, those two ways of exploring are so similar. Yeah, well, you know, it's really interesting. I love language and the yeah. study of language and etymology and where all these things come from and how they've kind of, at least where we think they've come from and how they've evolved. And, you know, uh, one of the ones I really love is discover. You know, mm. people think about discover and they think that they found something novel. But the ancient Greek for discover is to uncover, meaning mm. finding something that's already been found, right? So, you know, it's really interesting how the how these words kind of evolve, certainly, but it's also interesting kind of the implications that they had at different times in the world when they were used and then how we use them now. Uh, and I think, you know, back to where we started, I think there is going to be a new logo that kind of emerges. And I think it is going to be this, you know, it is going to be intent and it's going to be movement and it's going to be vibration and it's going to be frequency driven. It's going to be, and it's going to be a deeper understanding of the world that exists around us. But the, you know, the the words of that intent, if you want to call them words, because they won't really be so much manifest as words at that point. You know, they're going to be um, similar in aspect to how we describe things now. They're just going to be, you know, because that's why we describe the trip and the exploration and, and the perspectives and the high and all of this stuff it's because of similarity and shared experience. And so that'll continue just because of that, like etymological, you know, chain of, of custody, if you will. Yeah. I want to try to flesh that out a little more. Do you think it's like the development of like a, a, a sixth sense? Like we've always heard this term growing up. Oh, there's a, that person has a sixth sense, but like, but well, maybe we that's more six, but yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> like, I don't think, we probably don't even have the words to explain exactly what our senses are, but it does seem that there is this new evolution of communication that is more than words. Well, I think it's been, it's definitely been evolving. I mean, if right. you look at just like photographs to video to, you know, now that we have all these memes and things like this, you know, talk about a picture that says a thousand words. Some of those memes say 10,000, yeah. right? <laughs> so you know i think and then you know we've talked a little bit about it before but you have the things like Neuralink from the technological side of things coming down the pipe i think <clears throat> so i wrote this premise for what i deemed a sci-fi novel back in 2016 i think i called it the infinitum and basically there had been a cataclysm in society and society had fractured into three segments you have your basically uh, genetically modified elites who kind of live in floating cities. 
you have your kind of cyborg mechanistically modified human beings who kind of are the support staff for all of that. And then you have like the breakaway group of people who are, you know, just old school humans. And I wrote it as a science fiction, but man, I could see that becoming science reality pretty, uh, pretty easily with the direction that things are heading. Yeah. You know, if, if you look at every now and then on the news, you'll catch like, um, there'll, there'll be like an article that talks about this tribe in the Amazon or this tribe off the Island of South America. And it's, it's always this indigenous tribe that people haven't really messed with because they live their lives and they don't bother anybody and they don't want anybody around. Like those people are still living as hunters and gatherers. And if you read, you know, if you read any of, of the stories of Atlantis or, you know, even some of like the uh, Homeric verses, like you, you, or you hear about the barbarians and stuff. And it, it may like, especially the stuff about Atlantis, like it, it makes me think that there was this elite class of technologically savvy people and this whole other class of people that didn't even know they exist. And like that structure still exists today. Like the people in the Amazon, while they may know of, 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 of different people in different parts of the world, they don't know what the culture is like and they don't understand it. And they still live the way they've lived for probably a thousand years. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, in some ways, in some ways, I think the story you're writing is the story. Maybe you're tapping into the story of the planet. Like maybe that's what happens. Maybe <laughs> that's a really good point though. I mean, you have places like North Senegal Island, right? Where, you know, that one guy went and tried to spread some Christian yeah. joy and, and took some arrows for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah, it, it is interesting that we still live in a world like that with all this interconnectedness and all this, you know, communication and videos and everywhere and cell phones in everybody's pocket, except, you know, then you get, and this is kind of an interesting statistic. Um, so there's 2 billion people in this world that are unbanked. Wow. Yeah. And then you start to think about those numbers and you go, oh, wow, that's really interesting. Two billion people unbanked. And then so that's two billion people that kind of live outside of the global economy. right? And so, when you, you know, I, I think there is this massive gradient to society that you know, because of how we grew up in our surroundings, you know, we're kind of really ignorant to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like the. In some ways, it's like the allegory of the cave. Like mm -hmm. all we see, you know, especially in its country specific, I think in some ways, like, you know, how, how can you, a lot of people believe what they see on TV is real, mm -hmm. but those are just the shadows on the cave. I mean, mm -hmm. we don't know who blew up a bridge in Ukraine. We don't know who blew up a pipeline. We don't even really know if one blew up. I mean, I, I don't know anybody over there. I just watch this. I don't even really watch TV, but I, I hear on the radio. How can you like the fact that I don't even have a TV, but I know that happened. Like that's how much this imagery is being blasted out. Like they want to make sure, I guess they is the people in situations of authority want everyone to see these images. Right. And if you just think about news that way, like, Everyone, hey, everyone must look at this. I don't care what you think about it, but you must see this. And we're we're addicted to seeing it in some ways, and we thrive on it. And 
We go to work because of it. And we live our life around this narrative that is being thrust into us. But there's no way. We, we, know, we know that we're being told this is happening. But that's all we know. Might know a couple more things. Okay, like what? What else do we know? Well, I mean, you know, I think we know that there's effective things. We know that the narrative doesn't work anymore. You know, we know, you know, we have tools and we have communications and we have networks and we have technology that we're building and, we, you know, systems like a Bitcoin and things like this. Right. You know, so I think we do have a little bit more than that um, in the fledgling stages for sure. I don't think, you know, I, I think if, you know, shit were to hit the fan tomorrow, we're pretty much, you know, everybody's kind of, well, I'll see you on the other side. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It makes me wonder, like, do you think that the world would completely, not completely, but do you think people would just stop working? What would it take for people just to stop working? They're like, you know what? I'm not going to do this anymore. It's not worth it. I mean, a lot of people don't have that luxury, right? Like, you know, most, in fact, most people, because right. most people live in city centers and city centers, unless you work, you can't afford to buy food. And if you can't afford to buy food, you're going to die pretty quick. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's some intrinsic motivation. We'll call it that, right. that, that exists in city centers. But I think we've already started to see the beginning of it. We're seeing the exodus from these massive city centers. Um, you know, COVID really kind of kicked off that in a hurry, in a frenzy. And it kind of died down because, you know, COVID died down. But we're still seeing it. You're seeing mass exoduses from you know, places like in L.A.'s and New York's. Right. Um, and you're also seeing those places, you know, crime go through the roof. Right. Uh, just crazy crime. I mean, you know, people getting shot up in Beverly Hills and all sorts of things that you, you know, rewind 20 years, you would never think would ever be possible in this country. Do you see like, do you see us just spiraling to like a third world status where, you know, really rich neighborhoods have private security guards and well, I think kidnappings? And I think part of that's the intent. Mm. You know, I mean, look at look at the call on the liberal left of the United States to defund the police. You know, they kind of changed their tune when they realized that, oh, this is really bad for for our ability to get reelected. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's there's super cuts of videos of, you know, dozens of them saying defund the police. We have to defund the police. We have to defund the police. Yeah. Well, what that ends up and I think the motivation behind that is exactly that you they want a privatized security system. Why? Because you're not beholden to voters you're not beholden mm. to regulations you know you can you know, you know you have people to enforce you know uh make by day laws essentially right and so i think i think there's uh i think there is a drive and a desire for for all of security to be privatized just like most industries have been driven private you know there was a lot we were a lot more socialistic back in the day yeah uh, and then a lot of that has become privatized, you know, even our monetary system. So, I, you know, I think I think we're going to see a continued effort to push our security to a privatization as well. 
Yeah, I think that's what's happening in California, in New York, and all maybe Oregon, all like the really liberal states is this rush to privatization, privatized police force, privatized resources, privatized electricity, privatized water. Everything is going to be like a subscription. Right. And, and if you can't afford that, then you're going to be on the social credit system, the welfare system of the state, which is going to be driven by these central bank digital currencies. Ah. Uh, yeah, it's it's in, what have you given any thought? Sometimes I hear this theory that the Fed is trying to fight the internet. It's like the national, like the Fed being the Fed being pretty much the top banks in the US, even though those are subsidiaries of larger organizations. But I think it was um, Tom Luongo who was talking about the Fed trying to fight the international banking system. So by going with the higher rates, they're trying to push out the international people because the international banks are saying, look, we're just going to take over the US. We're going to we're going to suck you in and and we are going to put out this world digital currency. But the Fed is trying to fight them by by putting up these higher interest rates. And the, the, mm -hmm. the idea behind that is that that eliminates the zombie corporations that have just been, you know, shuffling money back and forth mm -hmm. and selling stuff back. What you give any thought to that particular idea? I highly disagree with that. What I think th the Fed was founded, you know, it, it's, it's always been an extension of the International Monetary Fund. Um, you know, if you look at the wars that the United States and the conflicts the United States has been involved in, every single one didn't have a central banking system before we started the conflict and did after we ended it. Right. You know, and I don't think that you just turn dime on that. It, more than likely, it seems that this movement of interest rates is to actually try to bankrupt other people, is to try to centralize more power. Because, like, just look, Credit Suisse is trying to sell off hotels and stuff to to uh, make their make their bottom line right now. Mm. So you have quite, Credit Suisse is about to go out of business and is about to default. So that's where they're trying to put the pressure. You put pressure on your competitors and then you just you buy up on you know pennies on the dollar. Yeah, real estate acquisition. You yeah. know, and that, that that pretty much fits the motif we were talking about privatization too. If you have places like San Francisco where you know the rent was you know, a hundred times the national average. And all of a sudden it's decrepit. There's like homeless people throwing doo-doo around. Those prices come way down. And then now, now you can buy stuff up for pennies on the dollar, put in a different harbor. Kick and out the homeless people. Kick, yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, I heard, um, you know, I heard these guys talking yesterday about, specifically they were talking about the bridge that was blown up in the Ukraine Crimea. or Crimea. Mm -hmm. And these guys had an interesting take. They, they had... They had quoted a, a Kissinger quote that was escalate before de-escalation. And so their idea was that what we're seeing now is a, a, a planned escalation where it looks like we go to the brink of war, nuclear war, so that they can siphon out more money and then reconstruct everything. And these guys were saying that, you know, what you're going to probably see is that it was, I don't know if anybody follows George Webb, but he's a pretty good investigative journalist. And his take was that a few weeks ago in Italy, there was a, and he's, he was, he was actually there in Italy 
and he took pictures of all these billionaires' yachts outside Italy and these mansions of Kolomoisky and you know the people that own the uh, vet the the steel plant. I forgot the vest steel steel plant or something like that. And uh, you know you had a. Uh, the, the leader of Ukraine, the president, he was there and you had some oligarchs from Russia and some people there. And he's like, look, there's clearly high level negotiations going on here. Mm-hmm. And he said this two weeks ago that what you saw, what happened there was the peace treaty. Like the peace treaty has already been signed and that you're going to see a run up and escalation until it looks like, oh, no, there's no possible way we're going to war. And then comes the de-escalation. But in the midst of de-escalation comes this $5 trillion price tag to reconstruct everything. And since USA was sending all the bombs over there, now they're going to be responsible for reconstruction. And you're going to see all, like, all those old steel plants and everything over in Ukraine is like 150 years old. So basically what you're seeing is this 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 planned op this idea of uh, yeah basically yeah yeah so let's blow it all up we'll destroy it blow it all up and then we'll suck out all the money and rebuild it we'll put some nice condos on the baltic sea everyone's going to get their pipe their brand new pipeline coming in we're going to move it from here everyone's getting a cut i mean i i I can see it look people come up with some brazenly shitty ideas yeah (laughs) um you know i would i would also cite that two world wars have showed us that maybe that's not a great idea yeah <laughs> um but at the same time it wouldn't absolutely surprise me right uh that being said i don't think that that's <laughs> the the path where all of this is leading personally what path do you see us on like what do you, if you were looking into your crystal ball what do you see well i think uh i think we're watching it the consult and we've been talking about it the consolidation of of powers and resources uh, in control uh the destabilization and destruction and you know degrading of nation states and the rise of the technocracy you know where and i think there is a massive investment in terms of just the people who hold the most money in the world and what they spout from their mouth on stage there's a huge investment in this future. And <clears throat> I think that we're going to continue to see, you know, moves being made and people getting embroiled and all sorts of things. I mean, if, if you look, I, I don't, you don't get a lot of news out of China, but I have a couple of places where I get some news out of China and they're up shit Creek in, in quite a few ways. And I've been talking about this for years uh, in my inner circle of people, but you know, they, they lied obtusely about their their economic ability and status and earnings and revenues and all of this stuff for years and years and years and years and years and because they tried to uh they tried to make a middle class and they tried to build all these cities and they tried to all these huge construction projects they funded all this money in all these foreign nations um but it was all kind of on like you know we can actually do 60% of that, but we're promising a hundred percent. And so that chicken's coming home to roost in a lot of instances right now. Uh, and so I think we're going to, you know, most people think China is this big looming threat and they, they could be, but I think more than likely they're going to pull a Soviet union mm. and you're going to see an implosion. And then you're going to see, you know, like a, a Tibet again, you're going to see a Northern Mongolia. You're going to see, uh, Cambodia, you're going to, you know, extensions there. You're going to see, you know, some India pick up some real estate. 
because there is a lot of people who are very different ethnically and culturally. There. Yeah, and I mean, if if history is any sort of barometer, you know, in the '80s we were like, "Oh, Japan's going to overtake us as the biggest economy, man. We can't even we can't even compete with them." And lo and behold, they, you know, they're they they fell through the center just like the same way China is, you know. And I think geography has a lot to do with it too. If you just blockaded, sure. you just you, like I don't know if you, I can't yeah. see my map, I but can. if you just if you just blockaded China. Might be on the wrong side there. It's on just, the wrong side. Yeah, <laughs> if you just blockaded China on one side, like you cut them off, like they're 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 geographically isolated by mountains and deserts, and then yeah. they only they only get their stuff through the sea right there. That's why they have those islands in the South China Sea. But you could cut those off, even even if they use their, you know, their their uh, aircraft carrying missiles or their submarines, you still can you still gonna cut them off long enough to starve them out, you know, and. You know, they're they are in some way a paper tiger, right? I, yeah, I really think so. Um, now, don't get me wrong; paper tigers can still give you a hell of a paper cut. <laughs> and you know, all it takes is one or two hypersonic missiles that actually work right. with a nuclear warhead on it that hit you know even close to a target, yeah. and that kind of kind of makes your point anyway. But it's not going to win you a war. Uh, and so I, I think from, you know, just a, a logistical standpoint, they've been spending a lot of money and effort and stealing a lot of technology to try to build their their military. Um, and they do. And I, I will say from like monitoring scientific papers, uh, there is an uptick in, you know, Chinese citizens who are releasing really quality papers out there and doing some really interesting research. Uh, and that wasn't the case, you know, up until maybe seven years ago and so you have to imagine this is a very small time frame to get things right right you know uh you know you've built some stuff i'm sure in your life and you know and you've done this podcast now for 200 some episodes iteration is just a magical thing that you really you know it's just like experience you can't buy it you can't teach it just kind of one of those things that has to happen and I don't think they've had enough time to iterate through their process to have an effective military system. Plus, they've never been challenged militarily since they've modernized, right? Yeah, that's a good point. It 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 definitely it definitely brings to the foreground strategy, you know. And, and in some ways, it seems like their strategy was. It wasn't. It's not less evasive than the United States strategy for world domination, but it is. It's, it's not as well, abusive, I guess, or as aggressive. Well, it's, not, it's not as direct. Yeah, there you go. So yeah, like when I was traveling Central and South America, you know, I noticed towards the end of my travels that every hardware shop, every grocery store, every you know knickknack shop was all all of a sudden owned by Chinese. Uh, and then, you know, you had a lot of places like Costa Rica, China donated police cars, helicopter, uh, a, a prison slave labor force to build a new stadium, build bridges. Uh, and then lo and behold, these countries start signing free trade agreements with China. Uh, you know, now there's a Chinatown in downtown that's built. Now you have um, now you have uh, Chinese fishing vessels raping fishing waters, uh, you know, putting locals out of business and all sorts of other things. And 
you know, you have like their Belt and Road Project. That's, you know, massive investment in all these countries from Africa to China. Uh, and then you have, so they've, they've been a bit more, you know, kind of obtuse about their approach, right? And they, you know, they figured maybe we can just buy up everything. Except I think they're running out of money. Yeah, yeah. People are losing faith in their dollar or their yeah. currency, the yuan. It's, it's interesting. I, um, yeah, it's almost like they have a little diaspora. Like they just send their people out to go live in other places and then they slowly just kind of take it over. Yeah, it's, it was really interesting too, you know, to start in a place and then all of a sudden fast forward five, six years and then you see just, you know, a downtown square that used to be, you know, a, a nice, beautiful fountain with these huge trees and all this stuff, big old Chinese arch and, a, and then a Chinatown replaced it. And it's like, wow, that's a trip. Yeah. Yeah, it's on some level. It's it's interesting to see the world of mankind spread throughout the world. You know, it's just like a different. You know, in Hawaii we have like a lot of invasive species. I guess you could say white people are invasive species, or Chinese. You could say whatever people you want, but like if you go back far enough in time, everybody's a fucking invasive. Species. I know, I know. <laughs> it's it's interesting how we. We grow all over the world, and, and, and sometimes in some seasons, this plant grows, and some seasons, this plant grows. You know, it's fascinating to think about. Oh, yeah. Well, I, you know, and it's interesting, too, how, how technology spreads within that as well. I remember, you know, going down to these, you know, people would call them third world countries, but I'm on the beach and I see people, you know, with a laptop. Yeah. And because Wi Fi technology came around, and you didn't have to wire everything through the jungle. Now you can beam a signal. <clears throat> now all of a sudden, they got to skip a whole step of societal development, and everybody's got a cell phone on the beach. And I was like, "Oh, that's fascinating." I never, you know, you never would have thought, right? <clears throat> but yeah, it was really interesting how technology kind of propagates through that that those life spores. <laughs> yeah, on some level, I think that that is another factor of what's happening. With a lot of the billionaire class and a lot of a lot of the uh, managerial classes and, and a lot of the wars that we see is this really big push to not let smaller countries industrialize. It seems to me that when a country industrializes, they begin becoming self-sufficient, and that's the last thing people in positions of authority want. Or it's it it seems to me. Like there is a ruling class throughout the world. You know, I mean, just you have a king of England. Like there's there's people in our country that are multi-billionaires. And once you, you know, once you achieve that level of success, then success follows you or or even rides your coattails. But the majority of that kind of success comes from, you know, uh exploiting entire nations if you can exploit the the currency or exploit the population of another nation you can steal all their wealth and if you can keep people poor you can continue to exploit them and and like you said technology does allow these poor countries to skip steps you know you can go to like there, i know some places in california there's all these telephone poles then you go to other cities there's no telephone poles because they got stuff underground they got fiber optics well there's no reason that those fiber optics couldn't be brought to some third world country and just boom, there you go. Or, or now you even have Starlink. You don't even need any of that stuff. 
So it's becoming easier and easier for third world countries to industrialize. So that means there has to be more and more famine and war for the people on top to continue to suppress them. You ever seen it from that angle or what do you think? I mean, you know, I don't think it's necessarily just famine and war on the top. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it's all of this. And I think the ruling class historically has kept tabs on how they've lost Mm, right they have a long history of of you know recording and reflecting upon their losses uh and i think what we're seeing is in effect of mechanisms of control to eliminate the propensity for them to have another loss because if you think about it if people are now in a welfare situation let's just take what the the world economic forum says on stage right people are going to be in in a situation where they'll own nothing in life you won't be allowed to have property right so now all of a sudden uh those people without having property you can't really assemble you can't have groups of people get together you can't you know you're just going to have people who are stuck in a, a social credit welfare system from these central bank digital currency social credit type things that are going to be popping up in multiple countries and already have popped up in quite a few and oh i forgot where i was going damn it <laughs> I think it was like a uh, the propensity to not lose anymore, right? And so, what that what that allows them to do is then basically enact control, right? It's a control mechanism. Uh, so now, instead of you know you assembling and even talking to your friends, well, you were out past curfew last night, and if you don't come home, we're going to dock you two hundred credits from your next credit payment from our from our social from our central bank digital currency this month well, i can't afford that man i gotta i gotta pay my subsidized rent and i have to pay you know all these stuff mm. and so it, it allows it allows you know the removal of basically our first amendment rights um at a fundamental level that doesn't violate the first amendment right that's what uh, i mean that's yeah yeah it, which is pretty nefarious if you think if you look at it from that perspective uh, but I think it's not just that. I think there's a lot of other things in play. And, like, you know, just look at the response to that happened to COVID. You can't tell me that at least at some level that was not a dry run for what happens if we lock everybody up. And if it, even if it wasn't, there was definitely somebody keeping notes. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of these, and again, we talked about it before, experimenting on the whole human population. Yeah. We're seeing a lot of these things that 20 years ago are unfathomable. You know, it, you would you would be laughed at, just about everybody would laugh at you and call you a conspiracy theorist or, or worse. But yeah. now you're still, still a conspiracy theorist, except people aren't laughing anymore because now a lot of people see the same shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. My, I was talking to my neighbor who, uh, you know, during the whole COVID stuff, I, you know, I was telling him my idea of what was happening. And, you know, I had written a letter to my Senator about the, the forced medical procedures and how I thought that was a huge mistake. And regardless of what's true and what's not true, it's unethical for anyone to force a medical procedure on people. And as soon as I wrote that letter to my senator, two weeks later, I got an audit from the IRS, you know, and, you know, Not I don't surprised. believe in, yeah, I don't believe in coincidences. Not and surprised. so I, I, I was previously telling my neighbor about all my, some theories and stuff. And he's like, man, 
I love you, George, but you're a bit of a conspiracy theorist. And this was like, you know, two years ago. Today, he's got some, he went to go visit some family in Utah. And he's like, you know what, George? Maybe some of the stuff you were saying wasn't so crazy. <laughs> and I started laughing. I'm like, look, I'm crazy. And I'm sure some of the stuff I say is out there. But I think here's what I think and here's why I think it. And, and so I think the idea is getting out to a lot of people that, you know, the 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 propaganda, the full blown, full court press of the what you're supposed to think is losing some steam out there. Well, and they got so damn absurd with it. Yeah, they really did. I think that was I mean, from, you know, just if I was running the show, you know, it, you know I'm not for sure. But if I was. Why would you get so so direct, so assertive, so absurd with what you're you're enacting and all of this stuff? And then you have these people go parrot crazy ideas on television. Yeah. You know, they're they're wishy washy on everything, and they say something different. You know, a week later than they 180 degree different from a week before. And yeah, all this stuff is like, well, whoever's running the show is an idiot. Right? You know, either that or they're trying to pull like some secondary con, right? Which, yeah. It might seem a bit more likely, um, but yeah, it's it's wild to you know. And then you have you know people believe in science. Like I mean, you got all this stuff, all these things that come out. And it's just like I, it, it, it's so absurd that people go, you know, look, I haven't really been paying attention. I haven't really watched all this. You know, I kind of watched this. I you know I've been voting and you know whatever. But things are getting a little crazy. Like yeah. Have you paid attention to this? Have you seen this? Maybe this guy George isn't that crazy. You know, he, <laughs> my guy, my buddy George in, in Hawaii told me about this stuff a couple of years ago. Yeah. And like, you know, and I think that's happening a lot. I think a lot of people are just because of the extreme absurdity of the whole freaking shenanigans. I think that's why you see we're seeing a lot of people go, well, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. It, it. I. I wonder that, too. Like, sometimes I wonder, is it just. Is it desperation that forces people to act or put out such crazy propaganda? Or is it the idea that Goebbels' idea of the bigger the lie, the more people believe it, you know? Or is it this mix of like, let's just throw everything against the wall so no one will know anything? I think there's probably going to be all three of those categories and a couple more, <laughs> depending yeah, on who's, who's, who's propping up the propaganda. Right. You know, I think there is a certain groups of people not a single cabal but groups of people mm. uh that are kind of you know have these multi-generational plots for things uh, right you know, I mean, uh, but i think you're also that also runs headway into you know what we know is the downfalls of nepotism and inbreeding and all right. this stuff right you know so now imagine yes you might have had some brilliant guy a couple hundred years ago who figured out this great plot but he didn't know what the fuck the internet was going to be Right. So now all of a sudden, fast forward 200 years and you got the inheritor of this plot. And we've already talked about the, the no struggle trust fund babies who, you know, everything right. entitled in life. Right. And now they inherited the problem. Yeah. <laughs> now all of a sudden, everybody's talking on the Internet about me. I don't know what to do. Well, what do you, you act absurd. Yeah. You, you know, those, and I've spent a little time around people like that. Not much, <laughs> but that is their go to is whenever they feel inferior to whatever situation's happening, they just turn to absurdity. Um, whether that be, oh, you know, you're all, you're all fired, or I'm going to buy this place, or, you know, you're going to hear from my daddy, or whatever, yeah. blah, 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 blah. You know, they just go to these absurd states that no rational other human would ever, you know, communicate as. Like, 
and so I think now you have these these kids who, you know, they are kids, especially mentally. These children who inherit these plots that they're supposed to enact, and all of a sudden they get feedback, they get pushback, they get they get people competing against them. Right. And you can't. And so you know, you you act absurdly. And how does that look from the other side looking in? I think it looks a little bit like this. Yeah, they're they're all Fredos and no Michaels. They're all Fredo Corleone. I'm smart. I can do it. I can run the family. <laughs> yep. Right, but none of them can because they, whether it's John Kerry and his silly kid or Joe Biden and his silly kid, like, dude, they're a bunch of trust fund babies that have never gotten a fight in their life. Mom and dad gave them everything. You know, they're just. Well, the they, other part, you never struggle. They and never struggle. We talk, we they talk never so struggle. much about about the importance of struggle. Right. You know? Right. Now imagine never struggling. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It sounds nice on the surface, but that's what you get at the end of the day. Right. Right. Like, look at at Biden's son, man. Like, you know, on some level, like I can't imagine, like how, like the like the only way like I could get away with what he's gotten away with is like if he's he's protected by like the three letter agencies. He's protected by his dad. Like that guy's committed so many crimes against humanity and our country. And he's just kept up in a mansion and nothing happens to him. And like, it's so sad to me that the people, I got to think that some people that are protecting him are, are just have an incredible amount of guilt. Like, what am I doing? Like, how, how can you, as someone who is supposed to protect this country, protect that person? Oh, I think you got a plenty of guilt. Yeah. I think you have to, Yeah, you know, at some level. Obviously, they're sociopaths and psychopaths. Sure. But I, I think, you know, by and large, I think, uh, you know, especially because a lot of those people, they set out with good intentions. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. You know, and I would say the vast majority of those people, because that's not a path one chooses without noble and honorable intentions. Agreed. Um, you know, because ever, you know, it's very apparent how challenging and detrimental potentially of a path it can be. And so, you know, I think there are a few hoorah people who really want to, you know, kind of get to the top of the, the thing and, you know, sure. and, you know, and I, and I, unfortunately, I think that just happens across the board. It doesn't matter what it is, but I think it is a little bit less in those kind of lines of work. Yeah. That's probably where you're getting all the leaks and stuff from is that, probably. you know, I would agree. I would think that the majority of people, especially Americans, they want to do good. I think that there's a, vein of integrity that runs through all of Americans that were were built on this idea, even though it may be a bit naive, but this idea of fairness, you know, like we believe if you work hard, you can at least get your way to a better spot. You may not make it to the top, but if you work hard, you can get a better way of life. And I, at least yeah, that was ingrained I, in my family. It was, it was for me too, but I woke up to a really different reality along the way. Okay. And I think a lot of people are these days too. I mean, you know, if you look at the statistics and reports on Generation Z and, you know, what they, you know, what sort of things they're looking for uh, or millennials, right, who, you know, they're not buying houses because they simply can't afford it. Yeah. You know, uh, I think a lot of the, that opportunity that was promised, that promised opportunity mm. in that in that motivational kind of, we are America. Right. I think I think a lot of it is now 
noticeably not there for many people. Yeah, that that would explain the idea of quiet quitting, and I I get it, man. I I, I can see, you know, if you talk, when I look at how the world works and how much social engineering there is, you know, everything has become about money or the appearance thereof money. And it, it has allowed for this radical shift of, and maybe this is a, maybe this is a growing pains for a country, or maybe this is what happens with capitalism, but it seems that there is no more social mobility. And when there's no social mobility, then there's really no, the, when there's no social mobility, you quickly get to, they pretend to pay us and we pretend to work because right. you're not right. There's no social mobility. So why do it? And I think right. that, yeah. I, and I, no, I think, I think you're right. I think we are reaching a lot of that point uh, because, you know, there's the saying, it's, it's not, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah. It's a and point. damn, if that's not much more, if that's not even more true today than it has been in the past when that saying was started. I mean, you know, if you look at the top echelons of most companies, it's a long line of nepotism. If you look at like your Bezoses and Musks and everything, they didn't pull themselves up by the bootstraps. They had billionaire, rich millionaire parents who financed every single flop and failure that they had along the way. And, and you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in education and all sorts of other extracurriculars. Uh, you know, they're so in part we've been sold a lie right and i think a lot of people realize that they've been sold a lie and i and i do think we're moving in in a direction where unless that unless that nuance has changed and it's kind of interesting because the gig economy and, and the whole social media and the internet and people being able to podcast and stuff like that is a little bit of a release valve of that it is you know it's kind of the resurgence of small business if yeah. you think about it a little bit um, you know, it, 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 more so in the spirit of what small business really started as in this country, I think. Um, you know, it wasn't the small business to get rich. It was the small business kind of filling the niche. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that, you know, the way the world works, it seems every time you, it's like a balloon. Whenever you squeeze the, if you, if you have a balloon and you squeeze it, a bu bubble comes out here, but you pop that one down and it comes out here, you know, and it, that seems to be like a pretty good metaphor for life. Like you can't keep life down. You can contain it to some degree and you could farm it to some degree, but you know, it, it has a sense of escaping, you know, just like the frog in Jurassic park or oh, know, yeah. it, it has a way of, of finding its way. And I think that that that's the spirit we talk about when we talk about resilience or we talk about finding a way and, you know, I, in some ways, I, like like I said earlier, you know, pressure makes diamonds, and it, it, the fact that we're talking about what's happening, the fact that we can see this sort of nepotistic royal family that has been built in the United States, like all you need to do is start looking, like if you look at the people that get positions, whether it's on TV or Politics. even actors. All, all, all actors up in high, high positions of authority. Like, there's usually a legacy there, mm -hmm. you know. And like, I was, I was talking to my dad yesterday. You know, 
when I was growing up, I didn't realize that there were certain farm schools for certain jobs. Like, you want to be a politician? You probably go to Georgetown. Yep. You're going to be a scientist? You're probably going to go to Harvard. Like, and how do you get into those schools? Well, you, you, you may, like, maybe if you're a genius at the age of five, you might get noticed and get a scholarship or something. Maybe if you work super hard and you know someone, you could get in. But most people are people with tons of money and a legacy of going there already or can, or can donate a building or something. They'll, their kids go there. Yep. So, you know, it, it's almost like we have an, you know, a somewhat of an aristocracy that's been born here in the United States. Well, yeah, I mean, we just recreated what we broke away from eventually. That's a great point. I, you know, uh, to the degree that, yeah, we don't have an actual king, but look at our past couple presidents and how dictatorial they act. Might as well right. have a king, right? Right. Well, how it, many Bushes? How many Clintons? You know, how right. many? And I was just about to bring up that point where you were talking about, you know, we have these political families and we have, you know, dynasties, have dynasties truly dynasties. And, you know, it's just like, it's, it's, it's wildly absurd to think that, these people have the best interest of everybody else in mind. <laughs> I, it's fascinating to me. As soon as I started to see a bit through the veneer of the world, you know, and then you look at politics all of a sudden with some uncovered eyes, you go, holy shit. <laughs> wow, these people are really up to no good. How can yeah. you possibly support this? I mean, it's like, you know, wild and rampant. Yeah, you know, I'll never, never forget the one time I talked to this politician talked to me she was all having a good time really was interested in like a, a cannabis thing or something like uh she lost her election comes in says hey you know i lost just wanted to come say hi and i was like oh good to see you again she's like talked a little bit and she's like yeah and i was like well are you gonna run again and she goes yeah well i don't know you know somebody came and offered me a hundred thousand dollars if i if i joined this party and, and you know i kind of towed the line but i wouldn't be able to kind of run for what i was trying to run for here well, fast forward two years, guess who won the election? <laughs> I mean, imagine that. Imagine that. And so it's like, yeah, those things happen. And then that's that's the way regulation gets moved forward. So, for right. instance, the reason she wasn't allowed to talk to anybody that she was talking to at that point was because she was big on the cannabis for the local people. Well, once she got into that position, now it's cannabis for all the regulators and, and the, all these state policies and all of these things where it's a pay to play system that if, you know, you're not a big company who has at least millions of dollars on the surface to pay to play the game, then you're out of the system. You know, yeah. whether that be explicitly you're not allowed to play because you can't afford the license or just, you know, kind of implicitly through the, you know, you're at the back of the list every time somebody needs to get, you know, samples checked. And so your delay is five times the delay of anybody else. So you're naturally just going to fall behind in the marketplace type idea. Uh, you know, there's all these little nuances of those types of games that they can play that just kind of weed people out of the marketplace. Again, back to what we were talking about before, about, you know, the United States making the moves with its currency to put people in a bad position where they're in a liquidated position because now you can buy all that shit up with pennies on the dollar. It's the same game. Yeah. Yeah, it, it makes me, you know, I think that you can make some, I think that you can make some noise when you vote on the down ticket. Like you can make some noise with your local community. Like you can vote in some, some people on the school board or your, right. maybe your attorney general and stuff. But I think on a, on a, on a, on a level of presidency, I think people are being conned. Like first off, 
no one like we the people don't get to choose who runs like so it, it's like this false choice that's put in front of us mm -hmm. and on some level i think all this money that goes into election season is just like a giant smoke screen for people like yeah i like this guy yeah no i like that guy they want you to get, they want you to be in it like they want you to feel Trump. as if yeah like hey look you yeah you should vote for trump no you should vote for Biden. like the fact is, it doesn't matter because your vote doesn't really matter when it comes to that level. Like right. you, that, you think that that's not already ordained? Like you can have, it's like you can have whatever you want for dinner. Do you want orange carrots or purple carrots? You know, like you don't really yeah. get a choice, man. Right. And, it's and not I, a choice. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's a lesser of two evils. Right. Right. Yeah. And it, yeah, which isn't a real choice. You know, and that's the other thing is. Our political system at scale, you know, how can how can you have a system to elect people to represent 330 million people right. stuck inside this capitalistic system that doesn't allow you to get your name out unless, you know, you spend millions of dollars. And then all of a sudden now, because of the way we shenanigan the game, you have all these packs and all these other things. And now it's not just a game of millions of dollars. It's a game of tens of maybe even hundreds of millions of dollars at the presidential level these days. Nobody can afford that game, right? No. Even if, the best, so the best ideas, that's where they go to die. Yeah. Because the person with the best ideas isn't going to rise to the top. It's the person who represents the money the greatest rises to the top. And very, I, I would argue that very few times the best ideas in that person are going to be a congruent thing. They're probably more than likely going to be pretty opposite of one another. Yeah, and then you start looking at, you know, how much money, how, what, how much of Twitter does Saudi Arabia own? Like, what percentage? I think it was you know, thirteen percent or something like that. Yeah, and yeah. like so, when you look at these giant corporations, they're owned by sovereign wealth funds and billionaires of other countries, and so these other these other interests you know you can call them special interests but i don't think that that's a fair enough assessment i would say more like other countries and other dynasties and other people that want to extract wealth from the united states they've just bought their way in like okay well we own this now and we think the policy of the united states should be to buy our oil all the time even though you guys have oil and we we have bought our ticket and that's what we want and if you don't do it we're going to fire everybody over here mm -hmm. and so you know, and in, and in a weird way, you know, what, I, what I've seen, like, if you, here's something I always wonder about. Like, when I look at Finland or I look at, you know, uh, Denmark or some of these other countries, they have this sovereign wealth fund where they take the people's money right. and they invest it in different – Yeah, right? And then that money that they have invested on behalf of the people comes back to the people in the form of a dividend or in the form of infrastructure. And, you know, I thought to myself, well, how come we don't have a sovereign wealth fund? And I'm like, oh, we do. BlackRock is our sovereign wealth fund, but they don't share the money with the people. They take all of America's money, all your taxes, and then they invest it and do whatever they want, and they take it for them. And then next year, you guys pay more money to them, but you don't ever get a return on your money. Like that, all your tax money, everything that you make goes out of the country, and that's why there's no infrastructure here. That's why people have bad pipes, and that's why there's a – lower standard of living forever and there's an importation of migrant labor so that they can continue to drain the american worker forever and ever until there's nothing left it's like a giant parasite oh yeah well and then you know then they 
then they uh, facilitate like the rise of China. Yeah. Everybody yeah. knew China was going to commit human rights acts. Everybody right. knew China was going to use slave labor. Yeah. You know, but everybody was also willing to turn a blind eye because guess what? I could get something five cents on the dollar. And, and then, you know, it, it didn't matter that that was going to eliminate millions of jobs in the United States and Europe and other places like that. Everybody signed up because they're not representative of the people that they're supposed to represent. They're representing, you know, the ability to make more money personal or at a group level. You know, it's very, like you said, we have an, arist an aristocratic class of society and they are inherently selfish. You know, it's interesting. I, I was reading this book called My Struggle a while back and it's this book about World War II written from this crazy guy. But it seems to me a lot of what was happening then is happening right now. And if you look at international finance, sucking everything out of a country and taking it for itself. Oh, yeah. You know, it seems a lot. It well, seems exactly the same thing that's happening now, man. Yeah, and it's wild. And, you know, the person who told that system to go suck it ended up <clears throat> as quite a bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like, you know, there's another book called It Can't Happen Here that was written shortly after that. And, you know, mm -hmm. it, it, it's just, you know, we talk about the world not repeating but rhyming on a, on a, high, on a uh, helical level. And if you look at if, if World War II was to be brought back around but at a higher level, the United States could be that Germany. You know, if, if, if Germany came back and, you know, think about Germany that pulls itself out of the Weimar Republic of their dollar being nothing and forming this incredible army, you know, out of necessity. Like I could see the U.S. doing that. If you look at the way the propaganda came after 9-11 and how effective it was to bring the United States together, even as fractured as the United States seems now. With the right level of propaganda, the United States could be turned into a machine that would dominate any country on the planet. And we could do it with pretty much no money. We could retool all the factories. We could do the same thing we did back then. And we yeah. could become the world power that no one could ever touch. Sure. But I don't think that that's where, we're, that's where this helical move takes us. Right. I, think it's not think? A, I, I don't think it's a world war of nations. I think it's a world war to decide if we're going to be a one world system or not. I think that's what we're, we're aiming to decide as a population. Don't you think that that's what Germany was trying to do though? Like, wasn't it nationalism versus globalism in that war? Yeah. In, in a sense it was, you know, Germany was taking the nationalist position. Um, and they were trying to kick out the central the central bank. They told them they told them no, and they they went off on their own path. Um, you know, obviously the the war stuff. I'm speaking from the economic type sure. perspective. Uh, and so yeah, they were they were you know trying to protect their nationalist system, and I think. But now we're seeing a different type of thing because up until that point, and still past that point, you still needed nations. Nations were the security blanket. They facilitated trade. They did these things that, you know, now with the advent of computers and 50 years of working on computers and all of that technology that we've built, you don't need the infrastructure of nations to facilitate 
mm-hmm. uh, what we call society. You know, by and large, it is already done by these NGOs, these international mm. conglomerates, these, you know, these massive, you know, system, you know, oil companies. Think about the infrastructure that they kind of, they have, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, it, it's by and large done on a privatized scale. So I think that's what we're, we're going to see, I think, the next world war. And it might not be bombs flying everywhere world war, but I think we're already seeing the beginnings of it, right? Yeah. It's hard to argue that we're not. Um, yeah. And, but I think we're going to see, we're testing if, do we still need nations or are we a single world system? And there's another side test in that is who runs that world system? And, you know, so yeah. I think there's there's quite a bit going on, but I think that is the natural kind of question that arises. Because you and I, we're, you know, we're talking, you know, 12, 1600 miles apart or something like that. And, you know, we could have people all across the world all talking at the same time. You know, why would we be dropping bombs on people? Yeah. It, 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 it kind of starts to defy reason. And so I think we're moving to those questions. Do you think that, you know, large corporations and, and NGOs and special economic, like, NGOs and corporations are kind of like countries. You know, they have their their people or they're like their employees. They're like monarchies, really. Yeah, yeah, they're authoritarian governments that can my rules or we'll kill you or we'll get rid of you or whatever. Yeah. You know, and and they they're and like you said, you know, you look at something like Facebook who's incorporated in Ireland, so they don't pay any taxes, but they're still protected by the United States military if they want to take something over or they want they they have they have the power of Twitter to go in and, and you know, to uh, they cause ran a an Arab, Arab spin yeah. off of Twitter, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So you can go in and destroy governments via social media, be it Facebook, and you know, right. it's it's. So, do you think that maybe these corporations and NGOs are are trying to usurp the nation states? I think indirectly, yes. And I'm sure in a few instances directly, um, just because of actions that have been taken. Like, you know, for instance, people are saying the Nord Stream pipeline had to be United States or Russia. There's a lot of billionaires with submarines, boys. Yeah, I know. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, let's be let's be real. And how many right. how many big giant yachts have been seized? How many people have have some uh, have some angst to get off their chests, right? So, I think. Yeah, we are we are kind of seeing indirectly and directly the challenging of the the the, the power structure. You know, yeah. because the question kind of naturally arises: if all of a sudden I'm an apple and I have a trillion dollars in the bank, and the country I kind of originated from, they're in the hole thirty trillion dollars. Who's performing better? Do I really? You know, look at me. I've been able to connect the world. They're just fighting the world. You know, so these, you know, even if they're not talked about at a boardroom, there are perspectives that kind of arise simply because of the environments, the nuances of, of what's happening in the world. You know, the resources that are being accumulated by these these NGOs, these big tech companies, um, not not just raw resources either. Exactly to your point, like a Twitter that's able to arise in Arab, Arab Spring, you know, simply from mass communication. You know, what sort of power is that right in relation to what a nation is 
because you know what a nation is yes you know a lot of people you know if you study civics you'll say it secures the rights of the people and all these other things but a lot of people think about a nation as just a, a protection of our land right you know it's it's the ability to run a military and it's the ability to make trade deals and things like that to keep us all hunky-dory and moving along as americans um so i think that again is just because we are seeing these you know a facebook in ireland who doesn't pay taxes to the government but i still have to pay taxes you're seeing different questions being asked from you know the the population level looking at this thing as well yeah that's a great perspective and i i when you say it like that it makes me understand a lot of the grinding that's happening between ideas and businesses and governments and corporations and you know forecasting for the future and rights and in all these things like it's this giant wheel that's just grinding against each other it's fascinating to think about and you know multiplicity I, of wheels in three-dimensional space <laughs> <laughs> right yeah complexity right the idea that each little part makes another part move and it's fascinating to think about yeah i i, I like what you said about about oh is it is it the USA or is it Russia? It's neither dummy. Like that's a false choice. And like either way, that perspective gets you to lose. Right. You know, it's like, <laughs> right. which one was it? Is it, is it, it's like the three card Monty, which one is it under right here? Is it probably this one or this one mm -hmm. under none of them, man. That's in the guy's hand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, th I think that more and more people are seeing that, like whatever the news is telling you, it's probably none of that. Like that's, they're just presenting you two horrible options out there. Right. Well, and, you know, at, from their perspective, it's all about generating revenue. So yeah. it's all about getting clicks. So yeah. the editor's looking at, you know, five different headlines and he goes, mm, that one. That yeah, one. this one will work good. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> Russia did it, right? Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, again, we, there's an absurdity to the whole thing. And I think the absurdity is kind of what allows us to unravel the, the complexity. Because if it gets to the point of absurd, you know, then it begs the natural questions. Of, okay, well, who's actually pulling strings there? Who's in charge? Who would let it to get to such a point of absurdity? If if that whole system of, of structure is completely non-relevant to what I'm seeing in my reality and day-to-day -day life, now they've lost my trust. And that's what we're seeing, I think, by and large, is just a systemic loss of trust in you know yeah. the established the established systems of the past whether that be the media or nation states um and i think even technocratic structures as well you know uh you know people get pissed off because i you know their iphone battery is all of a sudden crapping out on them half as fast you know or two times as fast as it used to well lo and behold apple gets sued for two billion dollars because they were doing that and, and europe said bad 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 but they still did it in the united states because they didn't get sued there you know, and so people see this thing like, ah, I'm going to Android, right? But again, that's the false choice. Yeah. Is it Android, is it Android or is it iPhone? Yeah. Well, it doesn't matter. They're both these multinational conglomerates that really don't have your best interests, just as probably even less than your political systems have your best interests in mind. I was listening to, um, I forgot, there's a, oh, gosh, I wish I remember the author's name. It might come to me, but he, he recently wrote a book on um, 
it was slightly about psychedelics and like the uh the company's name i think is called like fgp or something like that and, and this guy was telling a story about integrating psychedelics and for lack of a better word they're like life coaches or something like this mm-hmm. and um he told a story about you know he's he was working with Davos and I guess he was at, I guess Davos had like a psychedelic tent and he was there and on the website they have like, you know, they work with like Goldman Sachs and Cisco and all these like really high end people. And he told a story about how he got like some really high executive somewhere that he wanted, he wanted this guy to donate money to this tribe in South America. So he pulled all these strings and, you know, reached out, used all his connections to get this guy and his kids to go down to South America and do this really authentic ayahuasca traditional place way up in the middle of the Amazon. They took a boat up there and it was, it was something that like most people would probably, you know, love to do or cost tons of money. And, but he he was authentic, you know, and he he really pulled all these strings to do this authentic thing. And so they, he takes the guy and his family down there and they stay for like a week. And the guy does like four nights and, has these incredible experiences. And then on the way out, they go for the ask and they're like, look, you know, you can see how this medicine is amazing. You know, this tribe could continue to thrive and we could solve all these problems in the rainforest for like $250,000, you know, and it seems like you're doing pretty good at like 10 million a year. And the guy's like, well, let me think about it. And so he comes back and the guy's like, you know, I could, I really, I want to help these people. That experience was magic but I'd also like to buy this Lamborghini, you know, and I've always wanted a Lamborghini. And so he buys the Lamborghini and the guy that wrote the book tells the story about how he's, how he's down and out and like, you know, I'm never going to trust business again and all these people. And, you know, I reached out to the guy cause I wanted to talk to him and his, his, his people about it, you know, and, and, and as I read part of the book and as I, I listened to more of his stories, it just got me thinking like, on some level, like we all lie to ourselves, you know, and, and in this particular story, like this guy's talking about how psychedelics are done for, it's already over and that, you know, it's, it's going to collapse and it's not doing what it's supposed to. But then I started thinking like, dude, you're at Davos, man. Like you're working with Cisco. You, like, you work you you're the with the wrong people. Yeah, of course those people are going to not care about it. Like, yeah. you know, and, and like, it just made me, I, I really wanted, I reached out to him because I wanted to talk to him. And he seems so, he seems so distraught about the people and psychedelics. But then on their website, they're just, they're targeting the very people that are the wrong people. So then I, I'm like, maybe that's, maybe that's their gig. Maybe that's their shtick is like, he comes in here and he's like, oh yeah, this is bad. I'm just going to help these world leaders or these people at Davos that have all the, maybe it's just draining money from those people or something. But I don't, yeah. I forgot how I got on that tangent, but. I, I forgot too, but you know, people like that get dejected by the business world all the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, and then, you know, I've done the VC thing. I've, I've right. raised money for, for businesses before and it's 95% rejection. Uh, and oh, it's a little bit better these days. Uh, you know, it used to be like, imagine Shark Tank, but times 10 in terms <laughs> of rudeness. Right. Uh, it, it, and now it's a little bit better. But still, that's generally what happens. Uh, most of these people can't see an idea, right? You have to sell them an idea. It has to be a story. It has to has to sell them. And even when they see the story, like the ayahuasca guy, it's all about time. 
and if it's not the right time because the dude wants a Lamborghini, guess what? He's <laughs> buying the Lamborghini every single time before yeah. he's giving you that investment money every right. single time. Uh, it's just how, it, you know, when people have a lot of money like that, especially when you're talking like the VC and business world money and getting money in that way, um, you, the, the ability to kind of be philanthropic to, to, to remove some, some, you know, to have some sort of purpose, some greater ideal really kind of goes out the, the, out the wayside until they've, you know, now they've conquered their business dreams, go off and have this, maybe an ayahuasca experience or something like that. And then they decide that they want to change the world or you divorce Jeff Bezos. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to see. I, I often wonder, you know, I often wonder, you can't serve two, it seems like you can't serve two masters. Like you can either be a billionaire or you can have a family and have a somewhat normal life, but I don't think you can have both. I don't think you can be at the top of any field and stay there if you don't compromise other parts of your life. I would agree. I think, um, you know, just it's pretty, it's, we have a lot of examples, I think. Yeah. If we were to really kind of dissect it, uh, you know, people who are extremely dedicated to a single cause, yeah. whether that be, you know, achieving Olympic gold or, you know, becoming a world champion and whatever, uh, you know, those people often, they're very good at achieving that. And then they're very bad at achieving anything else in life because there yeah. is, there is nothing else in life. If, if they're being honest with themselves, everything else is a distraction. Right. They, I mean, you know, look at Tom Brady, right? He yeah. should be the happiest guy in the world. He's the best football player that's ever yeah. walked on the fucking planet. Yeah. But yet his wife is taking a hike because, you know, he's never around and he wanted to go play another season of football. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I agree. I, I think, you know, one can only serve a single master. And I think uh, it's interesting because I think what a lot of ancient texts and a lot of religious texts kind of allude to, but don't directly say, especially when you're taking the ones that aren't included in, you know, you know, things found like uh, the book of Thomas and book yeah. of and things like yeah. this. Um, I think a lot of this comes down to, you know, that, that personal master, you know, it's, it's, it's understanding and know thyself, right. It's, it's being able to find, find all of that internally. And then I think when you find that, I think you can have, you know, those relationships, but you also lose the ability to go headlong down that path because it's not a balanced path. Yeah. Yeah. The middle road seems right. to be the best road. You know, it's not, maybe not as many highs, not as many, but there's not as many lows, but I mean, you, you can experience. Sometimes I think that you get to experience, you can experience everything, just not all at once. Right. You know, you can have your well, balance, 20s to yeah, balance is balance doesn't mean you're always going to be walking on a flat surface. Right. Yeah, that's balance right. Means sometimes you're going to be at the top of the peak and sometimes you're going to be down in the creek. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it, it's a pretty beautiful view no matter where you are, if you're willing to stop and look around. Right. right. If you have the right <laughs> proper perspective. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right, man. So, yeah, I don't. What else you got, man? I what else has been going on in your world? Oh man, I had a wonderful hike today. Oh yeah, 
Yeah, I did about seven miles, nice. three and a half miles just straight up. It was about 1,500 vertical feet. I think I'm going to feel it tomorrow, but, you know, yeah, it was a good one. Colorado's starting to get cold, so I'm trying to pack them in while I can. You know, we don't have the 80, 84 degrees all day, every day like <laughs> you over there. Yeah, it's a... Uh... Well, it's starting to get a little darker earlier over here, but um, What's, when I was in Costa Rica, that was pretty well. Ecuador was right on the equator, so I didn't see right. much change. It set four thirty every single day. Mm. What sort of change throughout the day do you see? Like forty-five minutes throughout the year? Yeah, maybe maybe an hour and twenty minutes or something like that. Like it's yeah. dark now at like six. 50 or so and then in the middle of summer it'll probably be like 750 maybe at mm -hmm. the height so not not too much have you yeah. ever been to the northern latitudes or the southern latitudes i went to sweden when i i spent some time with a foreign exchange program over there and it was interesting because i landed you know it was like a 17 hour flight from california <laughs> and i landed and i woke up in the middle of the night and the sun was out I'm like, dude, whoa, what time is it? You know, I was, I was all disoriented. And mm -hmm. I look at the clock and it said like two. And I'm like, it's already 2 p.m. And I went <laughs> and out. I'm like, God, I slept for yeah, yeah. Everyone's sleeping. And I'm like, what the fuck? And then I looked again and it was like 2 a.m. And I'm like, what? The sun is up. It's 2 a.m. So, yeah, I've, I've seen that aspect of it. It's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's pretty wild. But, you know, sometimes people think the earth can still be flat. Yeah, <laughs> it kills me. Yeah. I, when that first came around, it was it was like what two thousand seven ish, two thousand six ish, and I was like, oh, surely this has to be a joke, right? Like this right. is just people like trolling the internet. Like uh, it's, nobody actually takes this. Oh, oh, there's a lot of holy shit. There's a lot of people who take this seriously. <laughs> like oh my goodness, this is this is heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah, that's um. My friend, uh, let's see. Oh, here's th this is the guy that I was telling you about a little bit earlier. Oh, okay. Let me see if I can um do this real fast. So I am going to send this little message right over here to this one here. Oh, I, can't, I don't know. I can't do it on my phone. Hmm. Let's see if I went like this. Um. Okay. Let's, this is probably a horrible idea. I just okay. <laughs> All right, hey Griggs, if you're there, tap on that link and it'll bring you in here, man. And anybody, hey, anybody who's in the chat, tap on that link. Come on in. Let's see. I was actually going to mention this. So I was watching a stand-up comedian who was doing a live show the other day, and he just threw out his Streamyard link in there for people to come ask him questions. Oh, nice. Yeah, and so he would just pull in people to the broadcast and then just kick them out after they started to ramble, right? <laughs> Well, which I thought I was like, oh, that's pretty. That's actually a pretty cool idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll open it up to everybody. Yeah, why not? Why not make it a little bit more dynamic? Who do you think the first person is going to be to come in here? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Nobody. Hmm. <laughs> It'll probably be one like a family member or somebody of ours or something, right? <laughs> like I'm just trying to embarrass you. It <laughs> oh, is a great. good idea. Yeah, that's a great idea. What was the comedian that you saw do it? Uh, Josh Wolf. Josh Wolf was he pretty funny? He's a funny dude. If you haven't seen Josh Josh Wolf's comedy, yeah, that's a good treat. I'm gonna he, check it out. That sounds pretty cool. 
he's a, he's a funny dude is an entertaining dude like his last special he did a whole lot of stuff with like a guitar and some comedy songs and just like back and forth with audience members and it was it was entertaining highly entertaining yeah it's that that's something that seems to thrive in dark times is comedy yeah well yeah comedy music arts in general yeah yeah Hmm. Yeah. Oh, my buddy's got, he's got crappy Wi Fi. So, ah. yeah. That's always something. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing to think of. Yeah. I, um, yeah. I don't know, man. I, uh, I don't know. I, I'm not sure where we're going to, but it, it seems like, I, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of propaganda and I feel like we're not, even though it seems we're in dark times, I'm not sure. Like I get this underlying feeling of everything's going to be all right. I think everything's going to be just fine. Yeah. But that's not going to be for everybody. That's a good point. It's a good point. What do you think? There's going to be another bout of COVID coming around here. This, this particular winter oh, time. Mm, I mean, I think a couple countries have already announced lockdowns. So have they really? Who else yeah. was announced? Oh gosh! Like preemptively, it was a couple of socialist type countries, mm. and it might not have been like nationwide. I think it might have just been for big city centers and stuff, like you know, around Christmas type things. Um, yeah, I can't recall off the top of my head. Yeah, but but I, you know, I I think we'll definitely once a virus is out in the wild like that, it's kind of like a flu virus. It's going to just continue to mutate. Um, and this one seems to have a penchant for mutating even faster than a flu virus. So yes. I think, though, typically what happens with a virus in a wild, um, this is just typically, right, uh, is it mutates to the point of kind of like a balance between being, you know, in, in, infective enough uh, and then, but also not destructive enough that it, you know, is deleterious to the host because its goal is to try to propagate as much as it can. Right. right. And so it evolves to kind of a homogeneous state, kind of like a flu where it's just like it doesn't really kill that many people. People kind of adjust to it as long as the virus keeps is allowed to kind of survive in the body. Which, is, you know, I, I don't know. So I think we'll definitely continue to see COVID. I don't think it's going away anytime soon. And I think there's obviously an economic incentive in tunes of tens of billions of dollars to keep jabbing people with you know, whatever they call a vaccine these days. Yeah, it's true. I wonder if, like, we spend so much time making weapons and researching, like, viruses and stuff and, and using biological warfare. I'm wondering, like, wouldn't it be better if we spent our time, like, creating a virus that made everybody smarter? Like, we could probably do that. Like, if we can make weapons, can't we make a virus that would, like, make everybody a little bit healthier, a little bit stronger? Well, uh, I think... To answer your question, maybe, um, but you have to also look at all the other factors there. If everybody all of a sudden starts to get smarter, well, they're going to want a larger piece of the pie because now, you know, they're all smarter and they can see that they deserve a larger piece of the pie, that there isn't scarcity, that there actually is a little bit of abundance kicking around. So I think that the incentives don't really align mm. for them to do that. Uh, but in that vein, I did read the other day that uh, they're using CRISPR okay. to, uh, they made a, a drug, I'm not sure if it was injectable or you swallow it, but it was made with CRISPR to attack the HIV virus. Hmm. 
And so the idea is it's not actually editing the human genome. It's going in and editing the HIV genome and not mm. allowing it to propagate properly. Ah, so That's a novel way of, of killing off disease. Right. So now if you, if you imagine that, if you're, if we could genetically modify, you know, diseases through CRISPR injections, um, gosh, imagine what that does for life expectancy. Yeah. Right. You could do it for cancers. If you, if you had a, you could test the cancer for its genetics and then come up with a CRISPR type of. And CRISPR is one of those things where you can program it pretty. Yeah. I mean, now it's been done so long, you know, you can program it pretty easily. I mean, so we're getting to the point of genetic modifications on humans, you know, yeah. I, I mean, we already there. We talked about the China stuff and things like right. that, but right. I think it's the mainstream aspects of it. Because all of a sudden, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be the easy sell first. It's going to be, well, you don't want your, you don't want your baby to suffer from MS. Right. right. We can fix that. All it takes is for you to just get this one single injection because that's what they are. They're one-time injections because you're changing genetic expression. Right. Yeah. It's interesting to think about, you know, <laughs> it's interesting to think about how certain types of injections may not only infect the very person that was injected, but may infect the children of that person. You know, we may right. see some long-term ramifications of what's happened in Absolutely. the future. You know, we, you know, now I'm seeing more and more studies. Uh, the first one I ever saw was a, a rat study where, you know, they would take a rat and expose it to some fear stimulus. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that rat, they would have offspring and they would expose that offspring to a fear stimulus. And they even went so far as to have two sets of offspring before they reintroduced the fear stimulus. Mm. And, and so like two generations down and they found that even two generations down, there was still a fear response to, you know, it was an Oculus thing, right? Like, right. A, like a red rubber, you know, ducky or something that right. the rat wouldn't have a response to normally and other rats don't. But because they scared one rat with it, that is transmitted genetically through, you know, probably the epigenome is kind of the, the suspicion, I believe. Uh, and so now we, you know, we're, we're getting more evidence for genetic memory. Do you think that that has something to do with like authoritarian regimes? Do you think that if people, generations are exposed to authoritarian leadership for three generations and they just come to accept it as that's how life is? I, I could, yeah. I mean, if we factor in genetic memory and then we look at other things like, uh, like a Stockholm syndrome, right? Mm, yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I could certainly see where those kind of would play off of each other in some sort of bene mutually beneficial symbiotic way. All right. Whoa, the man, the myth, the legend. I, I, I had to move around the house. My Wi-Fi is terrible, so we might get we might get cut off. Um, I don't know what's going on. Okay, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce to you a great friend of mine. Uh, Rich Griggs has had a – God, this guy's got so many cool – he's such a cool person. But recently, he's had a life-changing event, man. Interesting Rich, journey. Oh, without a doubt, man. What? Why don't we? I I, talk, I was telling people a little bit earlier how you and I and have done some pretty large doses of mushrooms before. From what and, I hear, from what I hear, I think we're the. I can't find another person that has. I trust me, I've looked. Yeah, I think. And, uh, 
I don't well, know. you found another one. You found another yeah. one. Yeah. 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 I'll, 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 I'll be right back. <laughs> yeah. I'm stoked. Yeah. I think that this community, like I've been speaking to some people like you and I. However, I think in our community, like you and I have had this talk many times. It seems that we're alone in the, you know, over 10 gram range right there. For sure. For sure. I, I, I would say from my experience, it seems like everybody's about around an eighth, maybe three, four grams. And you hear these incredible stories that remember we were talking, these incredible stories at three to four grams. And you're kind of like, okay, you know, but to each his own, right? I mean, everybody's brains wired differently. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, but um, yeah, it's interesting. It's fascinating, man. Why don't, really? uh, Dude, why don't, can you tell us what happened, man? Like, so you had a crazy experience, man. Are you ready to share that experience? Yeah, I can. I can. Okay. I would love it, man. Let's start off wherever you want to start off. Um, well, I don't, I don't remember too much about that day other than, um, I did, I went on, a maybe 10 and a half grams of the albino penis envies. And after that, I really don't remember anything else. I guess maybe I went to sleep. Long story short, ended up with cardiac arrest, uh, dying over like 40-something minutes at a time, over time, heart pumped about 10. And I told you about what my visions were during that five-and-a-half-day coma, you know, it was real psychedelic, real, uh, I don't even still know how to process it, but I just remember my brain was firing and functioning which I remember we were talking about, I think it had to do maybe with the psychedelics because my brain was fully operational. Like I shouldn't be functional right now if we go off of data, right? I should have some sort of mental or physical. I'm still trying to process it why I don't, but I do believe that the taking mushrooms that night had something to do with it. Because remember, I told you my visions, right? I'm in a dark room. There's these jesters laughing at me, and there's these cartoon characters, and I can hear things, but I don't see, I can't see the things I'm hearing, but the things I'm seeing are, remember the jesters and yeah. elves, and uh, and they're like laughing at me, and they're like taunting me. and ta 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 Take us from the point where, like, you had mentioned to me that you went, like, you woke up, cardiac arrest. You lose, you lose your sense of everything, and you, you thought someone had kidnapped you. Take us from that point well, so, there. So initially, from what I remember, I'm in a dark room with my ankles and my arms tied in a blacked-out room with these crazy psychedelic visions of jesters and elves laughing at me. And because I could hear people talking in normal conversation, I thought I literally was kidnapped and they were experimenting on me. Because I was like, last thing I remember, I'm in my house. Mm -hmm. And next thing I know, I'm being taunted by these visions. And I was like, it didn't make sense. And I guess this is the time I'm in the coma. I'm going through all this stuff. But I have no recollection of any of it. But my brain is functioning where I'm like, it's still hard to kind of explain. But like, I hear the, I hear the normal world, which is, I guess, maybe the, the dimension we're in but I'm in a totally different dimension. I don't know if that makes any sense. Maybe I'm in the middle of both, 
Yeah. But I, mm -hmm. I know, I mean, even even five and a half days coming out of the coma, I still had, I still was tripping, literally. I had tracers. I had, still had wild visions. And, and me, I've done 10 grams before. I've done it multiple times. I mean, we've even done, what, 12, 14 was the highest I think we went. So... It was. I thought in my head, you know, the ten grams is, is a is a ride we've done before, nothing too right. crazy. But in this instance, that that event happened. How long were you? How long were you physically dead for? They said a total of like forty something minutes. Is that on and off? Like on and off, yeah. Because I guess they had to pump my heart about ten times. Man. Wow. So it, it go. You go from from being dead to alive, and then dead mm -hmm. again, and alive, and. Remember, I told you my wife said I took my last breath initially, and then flatlined. And then uh, uh, they, I think they said normally they'll stop around seven, but they ended up doing ten, ten to my heart. And I guess then I, when I did finally come through, I guess they put me in that medically induced coma. But in my in my thinking, I went from taking the mushrooms, somehow being in my bed, and then somehow I'm in this dark room. Which made me think, yeah, I was like, and then it did make sense. Like, I kept trying to process, like, why would someone do this to me? Why would I be going through this? Why am I being, a lot of why, why, why. But the first thing that went in my mind was someone kidnapped me. And is, I mean, it sounds ridiculous when I say it now. Not really. I, I mean, I don't think it sounds that ridiculous. I think, I think you were picking up on a little bit of, of both worlds. Um, oh, well, I think I told George, I said, you know, whether you're spiritual, either religiously or or whatever, like, there is something going on in this interdimensional world we live in. Like, I mean, I always knew there was, but this fully, fully convinced me of it. Yeah, things, things that are happening in my vision were coinciding with the things going on in the real world. Mm -hmm. Like, simultaneously, it was wild. Right, you have one foot in and one foot out. One foot in, one foot out, and like I said, I, I could hear the world that we're like we're in now, but I was in somewhere else, and so, all I can think of is I thought about it a lot. I was like, man, it had to have been my brain functioning off of that, you know, that world. Because had I not done it, would I be in a different situation now? I yeah, kind of feel I would be. I think so. We came up with a hypothesis, you know, just from, uh, are you familiar with the neurogenesis aspects of mushrooms? Uh, how it's forming new neurons in the brain. And yeah, yeah, yeah. In the slightly, body. But slightly, but not, not to the you know, entirety that you guys know about it. Well, so the idea would be if, if you went on this journey, you, you formed a whole bunch of novel neurons and, and connections and all the, oh, did we lose him? Yeah, he'll probably be back. All right. <laughs> But yeah, he's probably still listening for it. So maybe you can explain it back. Keep keep explaining. Oh, yeah. So uh, oh, so so all of the all of the neuronal connections that you made during that experience would still be active and would still be would still be a real physical actual connections in your brain and in your heart tissue and in your stomach neuronal center. Um, so the idea of what you're you're dying and going out and coming back in the the normal attrition that one would normally get on on the brain right mm -hmm. there's only so many connections one would have but you had a whole set of other connections 
that allowed you to kind of, you know, weather the storm a little bit better. So no, exactly. That's exactly how I kind of figured it would be like there was things plugged in that normally aren't plugged in. But because of that experience, everything was plugged in. And I mean, it was one of those, you know, the stars are aligned kind of deal. Like it's not something we normally do is take those huge doses. You know, we, I think our average is what we do four or five grams all the time just for kind of, I mean, it sounds funny kind of for shits and giggles, but this time, you know, it was, uh, yeah, it was, I felt like totally like everything was plugged in. Yeah. That normally isn't plugged in. And I think, I think kind of what happened is, you know, when we, when, when the human body dies, typically there's a massive release of DMT, right? Yeah, exactly. And so, and so what I think is like the DMT kind of took you into those pathways and you were one foot in and one foot out. You were kind of experiencing a bit of synesthesia almost where you were kind of the, the sensory information of the outside world was there and it was penetrating in, but you were, you had another foot in this other world over here, you know, kind of the DMT world that was and putting you into those novel connections of, from the, the psilocybin trip the previous night. No, that, that makes total sense because uh, it was like I was literally in two different worlds, a foot in, foot out. And, and I kept thinking, like, if I wasn't, if I didn't, if I wasn't plugged in, as you said, I think things would be totally different. I yeah, you would have, I think that you, the idea of the brain not getting oxygen or blood for like five minutes is usually when you begin to see some pretty profound brain damage. Brain and, damage. Yeah, and, that's, and that's what I looked up is like, I should, I feel that I'm fully back to where I was mentally, especially mentally. I, I don't really have any, nothing. And that's kind of shocking in itself because it is. It's, oh, everything, I mean, yeah. everything you read <laughs> and everything you've looked up, I should I should not, be way worse off than I am. Yeah, you should. Well, technically, you should be a vegetable, a vegetable yeah. by all of the medical yeah. literature. Yeah, yeah. That's what and the doctors like told you the, too, right? The doctor said that right off the bat. He's like one in a thousand, you know. And I'm like, and that's kind of heavy to deal with. But I was like, I am appreciative that I have been enlightened to this type of activities in the past, where like it was totally, It was like. I told you, George, it was like, it was wild. Hundreds of these. It, didn't it, there those that, that I just realized it kind of now, those DMT elves everybody talks about? Yeah, yeah. And basically, that's, remember I told you there were elves, there were court jesters, right, they, right. Were, they were Disney characters, there were hundreds of them, and they were specifically like taunting me and communicating with me. It wasn't like I was watching a movie, it was like I was in the movie. Mm -hmm. You know, and it was like, uh, I mean, it got it so intense where I had to close my eyes to try to avoid them, but nothing I could do to avoid them. It was like thrusting me in my face, like, you're going to deal with this, you know? And now that yeah. I think what we're talking about, and I'm thinking about it, maybe that was the whole point of it is like, don't shut off because I wanted it to go away. Right. It was overwhelming. It was like, please go away. Please stop. I don't want these experiments thrown on me. I leave me alone. But, Maybe that's the process I had to go through in order to be where I am today, mentally. Maybe if you would have, maybe if you would have went away, you because I died. did. I was, I was like almost like begging to stop. Please stop. I don't want to see this anymore. But then, 
maybe that's what kept me alive and kept me going. Very well. Could stay here. They're throwing stuff at you. You know what? Whatever yeah. they can. And to I keep didn't you really. Here. I, and, and not until talking about it now with you guys that I realized that maybe that's what it was. It was like because it was literally being forced upon me. And most yeah. times when we do these psychedelic journeys, we welcome whatever comes from it. But at this point, it was so overwhelming and it was so like deliberately toward me. Like I say, I wasn't watching a movie with funny pictures. I was in this movie with funny pictures. Right. And then I didn't put it one and one together, like the DMT elf thing, because I totally seen these elf-like people and these, you know, like on a deck of cards with the gestures with the bells on their hats and shit like that. And like they're yeah. like throwing, they're like throwing shit at me. Every time I try to block them away and close my eyes, they're like throwing their shit back in my face to keep me like, shit, dude. I just realized that now that's exactly what the fuck was going on. Because well, yeah. I, I tried, I, I, I tried my best to block it out. I tried. I was like, Man, yeah. I think stop, I think stop. that was a. I think that was your inner self staying alive. Wow. Yeah. Jesus. I do too. I. Man, I, I, I have to. I got a hard out, guys. And Greg's got to come back on. We're gonna do. Greg's gonna come on for a couple of shows, and uh, we're gonna get into the meat of this, man. Yeah, my we wife will. and my daughter are smacking me around over here, and they're like, "Dude, if you don't get off right now, I'm gonna punch you in the face, George." So punch him, punch him. Don't, don't provoke. <laughs> no, no, let's do it. <laughs> we'll do a full sit down and all that, and then yeah, you know, absolutely. Can, and I'll be able to process a little bit more because I. I think I just realized some shit just now about, you know, I've been trying to find out, you know, like, yeah. and then the whole, the whole thing, remember why me, why this, why that, why, 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 maybe I should just get away from the why and just figure out the how. And Well, I think just talking to people is going to help, help yeah, process it that. It'll, it'll get you to the why. Yeah. yeah it'll help. Yeah. It will, man. So we'll schedule, um, you're, you're off all week, right? I'm off for the next year. <laughs> <laughs> all right i'll shoot you a, uh i'll shoot you a text here in a little bit and uh we'll, we'll schedule some stuff and we'll get it done and we can have ben come on and maybe some people other you know depending on if you want other people there or whatever so no no i've been watching you guys for a while and yeah it's super interesting so yeah you know me i just jump in and see what's going on you're one of us bro you you fit perfect man all right yeah nice to meet you man happy you came out the other side too yeah yeah thank I you. And we'll get yeah. we'll get we'll get deep in this. Yeah, we will. All right, guys. Hey, I thank you both very much for cruising, and um, we'll touch base with everybody uh, real soon on a couple days, and, and we'll have our Sunday show going on. And uh, yeah, get ready for Greg's story. Ben, thank you very much for spending time with us, and we'll check everybody coming up here in the next couple of days, man. Aloha. All right. We'll see you later.
Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.